Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. I was thinking about something during the song service. I was looking at the picture that's up on the screen. And what's fun is that's not a photograph. That's our artist rendering of what the building would look like. And it was a dream. It was something that we prayed about. And uh, now God has done it. Isn't that a blessing? We get to be here in this place. So praise God for that. Um, Andy, do me a favor. Put the, the thermostats so the fan continually runs rather than coming on and off. We have been teaching or looking at what I've called our launch sermons before we do our grand opening. And we're going to announce that as we get everything finished in the building. But before we do that, before we start inviting the community even on a grander scale into our ministry, there are some things that we wanted to establish before that happens. So if you remember, we said that we're going to preach Christ from this platform. That will never be changed. Amen? We will always preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're not going to move into the social gospel. We're not going to become a politically oriented church. We are going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we must become a welcoming church. That means that we are prepared for people when they come. It's interesting. If only the members of Grace Baptist Church came, all came on one Sunday, we wouldn't have been able to fit them in the building. Now we can. But in order to reach out beyond just the people that are part of our body, then we need to make sure that we're going to do some things on purpose to become a welcoming church. And then we need to recognize the call of God on our lives and that the, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God has a plan for each and every one of us in this place. And then we will ground our preaching in biblical theology. My opinions do not matter when it comes to the Word of God, when it comes to ministry. We will base everything we do on the Word of God. Then we're going to live for Christ because of him and in the building of others. We have our life because of Christ. Because he lived, I live, ye shall live also, Jesus said. And then the Apostle Paul said, and now we live if you stand fast. So we live through Jesus Christ and building others through discipleship. Then last week we talked about being a witness for Christ. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be a witness for Christ? This morning, I want to continue that thought from Acts chapter 24. But it's going to be a little bit different. We need as believers, we need to stand what does it mean to stand as a believer, and how are we going to do that in this culture? So we get Acts chapter 24. We're going to do like we did last week. Let's everybody stand. We're going to read through this whole chapter, Acts chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible with you, look under the chair in front of you uh, or near you. There should be a Bible there for you. And if you don't have a Bible in front of you, it's going to be real hard for you to understand what we're doing today. So make sure that you have your Bible. And let's all read the Word of God together. Follow along silently as I read. And after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus. I like to call him Tertullus. I think that's a more fun name. Who informed the governor against Paul. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him. So what happened? The, the Jews had, a, had arrested the apostle Paul in the temple. Now he's standing before Ananias, and this Tertullus is actually a prosecutor for the Jews, and he's going to give his indictment of the Apostle Paul. 
And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Now, what he's doing right here is he is trying to flatter Felix the leader, not Felix the cat. That's a different person. He's trying to flatter him. But what I also want you to notice is he's not only flattering him, he's lying to him. Did the Jews enjoy the reign of the Romans over them? He's absolutely lying to him. So imagine in court, the prosecutor begins by lying. That's what's happening in this indictment against the Apostle Paul. Verse 4, Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. Now he goes into the indictment. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. In other words, they would have killed him. But the chief captain Lysias came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee, by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned for him to speak, answered. Now here, look at the way that Paul. Paul is respectful to Felix, but he does not lie. For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. So what does he do? He acknowledges his office, but he doesn't say anything about how well he's done it. Do you see that? So you have a flatterer and a liar accusing the man of God. The man of God is showing us how to answer an accusation. Verse 11, because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. So all those things they accuse the apostle Paul of, he's saying, I only had 12 days and that includes the travel time to get here. There's no way I could have done the things that they're saying I did in that amount of time. Verse 12, And they neither found me in the temple, disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee. I didn't do those things. Here's what I did. That after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And herein do I exercise myself, to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult, who ought to have been here before thee and object if they had ought against me. Or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council, except it be for this one voice that I cried, standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, than he, having more perfect knowledge of that way, 
He deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty, and that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come unto him. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, look at what it says, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might lose him. Wherefore, he sent for him the oftener and and communed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. Lord, what an amazing account in your word. Lord, it's a blessing that the Apostle Paul stood for you. Help us as believers to know how we ought to stand in this age, in this time, in this culture, because of what we learn from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. I think that you can be seated. I think that that's such an interesting thing that after Paul reasoned with him from the Scriptures about judgment and righteousness, the judgment to come, that Felix trembled. That's the conviction of God on him. But what did he have? He had a desire more for money than he had for righteousness. It's an interesting thing. What I want you to see some things here is how the believer is to stand in this age. And uh, my message shouldn't be long today. Famous last words, right? My message shouldn't be long. I know you all are tired. It's weird how time change affects us and all of those things. So if you can really focus, I'm going to have three longer quotes where we're going to read something in this sermon. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. So when we get to those, really plug into it because you're going to be fascinated to see what people have said about us in history. But I, I want you to see something that's pretty interesting. And it's fun that we had a discussion in our Sunday school hour about this. We are not called to react, we are called to stand. We are not called to react, we are called to stand. Let me give you an example. We are not at Grace Baptist Church because our desire is to preach the Word of God, to preach the Word of God expositorily. We're going to get back to our Zechariah series, going verse by verse through Zechariah. We're not going to spend our time reacting to what happens in the news, what happens in the government. That's not what we're here to do. We're here to preach the gospel. Amen? You know, all of the stuff that has happened recently about abortion, all of the things that's happened, that have happened recently about socialism, all of these different issues that are going on in the world, we will address those things periodically because abortion is murder. So we, we have the moral obligation as God's people in this country to have our voice heard on those subjects. Amen? The Bible says that God hates an unfair balance, and that's what socialism is. Socialism is what so, socialism is government theft. That's what it is. People say, well, let the government pay for it. The government doesn't have any money. The only money the government has is the money that it has taken from people who have earned it. And yet, we can't give our time focusing on economics. That's not what we are here for. We are here to preach the Word of God. We cannot react to the culture. We must be standing in the midst of the culture as a light to the Gentiles. That's who we are supposed to be, as a light 
to the world. So we're not called to react. We're called to stand. Uh, we had some questions in the Sunday school hour about some teaching that's happened in, in the past. And in every Sunday school hour, I do a question and answer time. Every Wednesday night when I'm here, I do a question and answer time. So if you have a question about the Bible, about something that's going on in the culture, you can ask any of that anytime in those uh, sessions. And so we had a, a question this morning about some teaching that's been going on, and we looked at it, and what happened in, in this question, I don't want to get into the actual topic right now, but you have some really good men on both sides of the conversation, and I cited three or four different authors that have written on this subject. And I consider all of them godly men and men that I have learned from. I've actually read things that they've written. All of them are good. What happened in that topic? All of them reacted. See, we can get very distracted when we react. What it does is it gets us off of what we are supposed to be doing. God didn't call us to react. He called us to stand. So we're going to look this morning at how a believer is to stand based on this text. We're going to learn from what Paul did. The first thing is a believer must understand his warfare. It's been said that when it comes to battle, the first thing you need to understand is that you're in a fight. Uh, how many of you saw the video of that kid, that conservative kid getting punched in the face at Berkeley? How many of you saw that? Here's what that young man didn't understand. He was in a fight. So he thought it was all done because he's not an aggressive person. And he's looking down, he's doing something, and the guy punched him in the face. When you've got someone that's being aggressive towards you, the last thing you want to do is take your eyes off of them. And so... I told uh, Caleb Spicer, I would have liked to have seen him do that to him. Oh, I'd love to see a video of that. That would be so much fun. But, but what has Caleb taught us at man camp? That if you're in a situation like that, just look, I don't want any trouble. I don't want any trouble. And what that does is then you're in a position to do something. So when that, that punch comes, you can deflect it. One of the first things, and it, you also have a defensive posture for when the cameras come out. If you're like this, that's aggressive. How does the uh, fighting Irish guy? The issue is what we're supposed to, what we are supposed to do is we need to recognize that we're in a warfare. And the Bible covers that so many times. It, it describes what we're doing in the world as a battle, as a warfare, and we are soldiers in it. Now, let me qualify that. There's no place for guns in the preaching of the gospel. Let me say that again. There's no place for guns in the preaching of the gospel. I can't pull a gun on someone and say, you have to believe what I believe or I'm going to kill you. There's no place for government in the preaching of the gospel. A state church is a violation of what God would have us do. Because you cannot force someone to believe something against their will. No, I know. I, I, I feel like I, I got a little pushback right there. I'm all for guns for defending ourselves. But that's a defensive thing. It's not an offensive thing. Amen? Jesus Christ, when he sent his disciples out, he said, sell your shirt and buy a sword. Sell your cloak and buy a sword. He told the disciples to take swords with them. So as we go out, it's fine for us to be armed, but I'm just telling you, if anyone ever feels like you are uh, 
requiring them to believe with force, you have violated the scriptures. And it's interesting that the disciples said to Jesus, well, we have two. They had two swords, and Jesus said, that's enough. So he wasn't telling them to become an armed militia. They didn't build a compound. They were to defend themselves because it's no one else's responsibility to defend you. But neither were they to become a political or a military force. We are supposed to be a spiritual and godly force standing for God in the culture and evangelizing the world. Amen? Amen. All right. So, believer must understand his warfare. Let's look at this from the text. Get your Bibles. Look at Acts chapter 24. We need to understand that the kind of war that we're in, first of all, that it is a culture war. It's a culture war. Uh, Look at that culture war. I want you to see this, what it says about him. In verse 5, For we have found this man a pestilent fellow. Isn't that awesome? Paul was a pest. He was a pest. And you know what we're going to be in this culture war? We're going to be a pest. When we stand up and say that there's only men and women, there's nothing in between. And if you're a man, you're a man. If you're a woman, you're a woman. Because God created Adam, God created Eve. Here's what it says. Male and female created he them. That's who we are. So when we stand up and say that in the culture, that's going to be offensive to people in the culture. Is that right? Now, here's the problem. There's this weird teaching that's going on that words are violence. That words are violence. That's the silliest thing I have ever heard. Has anyone here ever been punched in the face? Anyone here ever been punched in the face? Yeah, that's violence. Do you wish they had used words? It's different. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but... Unless you're a liberal. People are nuts. It's crazy. So there's this idea that words are violence. So when you say that God created men and women, we're not attacking anybody. We're standing. We didn't change. They changed. We're just standing. We're not attacking them. They are attacking reality. They are attacking the truth. So when we stand, we are, we are going to be considered pestilent, troublemakers. The next word, look at what it says. Not only pestilent, but seditious. Seditious in a mover, verse 5, of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world. We're trying to raise people up to hurt people. What did we just say? We have, we, the last thing in the world that we're going to do is hate someone or hurt someone that calls themselves transgender. We're not going to hurt them. We love them and we want them to know who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Whatever it is that they're seeking in their physical body, God can heal in their spirit. We're not reacting. We're standing. But people call that sedition. And there are places, whether it's in Canada or in other places, where you will go to jail if you say those things. There are states in the United States that if you refuse to give your children drugs to transition to another gender, they'll take your children away from you. There's a 17-year-old child in Ohio right now that has been taken away from his parents because they refuse transition drugs. What happened? 
They were uh, supposedly violating the law. We are seditious when we take a stand for Jesus Christ, for the truth, and for biblical sexuality. It's a culture war. Not only is it a culture war, it's a religious war. It's a religious war. I can't tell you how many times where I've been in a group of preachers and they start saying something and I stand up and say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, the Bible says this. The Bible says this. Oh, you're going to change what the Bible says? No. Do you know what happens when you do that? You do not become popular at the preacher's meeting. You're a pest. You're a troublemaker. Well, hi, my name's Jim and I'm a pest. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to speak for the truth wherever I am and whenever it's necessary. That's who we are and that's who we are supposed to be. But we need to understand, not only is it a culture war, it's a religious war. You see, the Apostle Paul was standing up against Roman culture, but he was also standing up against the violations in Jewish religion. The Apostle Paul himself was a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He never, to the best of his ability, violated anything in Judaism. Christianity does not violate Judaism. Christianity fulfills Judaism. But what the Apostle Paul understood was that he is in a religious war. And folks, we are in a religious war. That's where we are. I want you to notice something. Look at what it says in verse... 18, I'm sorry, verse 14. Here's Paul's confession. But this I confess unto thee, but after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. This is vital. Keep your place here. Go to, Act, to, go to John chapter 17. It's a culture war, and it's a religious war. John chapter 17. Now, you all know that this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. This is where Jesus is, or is praying to his Father about us, about his disciples. Verse 14, this describes the place of the Bible-believing Baptist in the world. Verse 14, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now, how many of you believe that we have the word of God? How many of you believe that? Well, the world doesn't like you for that. And the Christian world doesn't like you for that. If you say that you can actually hold God's word in your hands, the Christian world hates you. If you say that God has preserved his words, the Christian world hates you. Here's, here's how it happens. How many of you have heard something recently, something like this? Well, the Bible never speaks out against homosexuality. Have you ever heard somebody say that? The New Testament doesn't say anything about it. Well, the Apostle Paul addresses it very clearly in the book of Romans and in 1 Corinthians. The Bible very clearly says it, but what they have to do is they have to change what the Bible says. They have to say that's not really what that means or that's not really in the Bible. If you say you believe what this book says, they will say that you are a heretic. You are an extremist. You are an extreme fundamentalist. That's the language of the world. That's the fight that the Apostle Paul was in. And he stood up and said, look, all I talked about was the resurrection of the dead. The thing that made them mad was my saying, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's what offended them. When we as believers stand up, we're about to have Resurrection Sunday here soon. When we say that Jesus Christ visibly, bodily, personally rose from the dead, you'll have other Christians that'll say, 
I don't think that's what that really means. And notice what he says. After the way which they call heresy, that's how he preaches. I want you to notice something. This is one of those long quotes that we're going to read together. There was a Presbyterian pastor. His name was Edmund Calamay. You can see his dates from 1600 to 1666. It's very interesting. These were godly people. This guy, Calamay, I'm sure he was a very godly man, a very separated man. So he goes into the House of Commons, and he has a problem with a group of people that are preaching in England at that time. And look at what he says. This is in a sermon that he preached before the House of Commons in England in 1644. Look at what he said. If you do not labor, he's talking to the political leaders, according to your, to your duty and power to suppress the errors and heresies that are spread in the kingdom, all these errors are your errors and these heresies are your heresies. So think about what he's doing. He's preaching to lawmakers and he's telling these lawmakers that it's their job to fight against false doctrine in their country. Please do not say amen to that. When I go to Washington tomorrow, I'm not going to ask those guys, and we'll be meeting with all of the leaders. We're not going to ask them to fight heresy. Do you know what we're going to ask them to do? Leave us alone. See, here's what people say. There ought to be a law. You ever heard that? There ought to be a law against that. No, we have way too many laws. How many of you, this, this is just a simple one. Dan New and I were talking about this earlier this week. How many of you ever went on a trip without a seatbelt? How many of you are still alive? Okay, some of the same people didn't raise their hands. I'm really worried about you. It's, you don't need seatbelt laws. If somebody doesn't want to wear a seatbelt and gets in an accident, they die. Okay, that's their choice. You understand liberty? You understand freedom? That's their choice. You should not require people to wear a seatbelt. It's silly. See, here's the problem when you get into religion. So let's say that there's a social behavior that we're against, and we make a law against that. Well, you understand what's happening now? Our social behavior, standing against homosexuality, they don't like that. They're going to make a law against that. There don't need to be more laws. There need to be less laws. Leave us alone. And so here, Calamay is before the House of Commons, and he's asking these, these political leaders to pass religious laws. And what he's saying is, if you allow it, these heresies are your heresies. Now look at who he's identifying. They are your sins, and God calls for a parliamentary repentance from you this day. Who is he mad at? You are the Anabaptists, you are the Antinomians, and it is you that hold all religions should be tolerated. What were the Baptists saying? All religions should be tolerated. Now, here in the United States, we don't have religious toleration, we have religious liberty. Toleration, you tolerate your children making noise. You tolerate it, right? We have, but you might not tolerate someone else's kids making noise. You don't, you don't tolerate that. Freedom, liberty is do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't harm someone else or violate the law. That's liberty. 
That's liberty. But they had toleration. These Baptists were asking for toleration in England. And what this is saying is if you believe that, you are antinomian. What does antinomian mean? Against the law. It's from the Greek word namos, which is the law. Anti, you're against the law. In other words, you believe in chaos, that anything at all should be allowed to happen. What was this Presbyterian leader in England saying? Those Baptists, they're heretics. Their heresies are your heresies. After the way of heresy, what they call heresy, that's what I preach. Stanislaus Hosius, he was a a Roman Catholic uh, historian. He wrote this in 1558. Listen to what he wrote, 1558. If the truth of religion were to be judged of by the readiness and cheerfulness which a man of any sect shows in suffering, then the opinion and persuasion of no sect can be truer or surer than that of the Anabaptists. Since there have been none for these 1,200 years past that have been more grievously punished. In 1558, he says, for 1,200 years, these people called Anabaptists have been punished, they've been burned, they've been pierced through, they've been tortured, they've had their skin pulled off of them. Why? Because they're heretics. I have given them thy word. And the world has hated them. You see, one of our Baptist distinctives is that the Bible is our sole authority. We agree with the creeds where the creeds agree with the Bible. Where the creeds disagree with the Bible, we disagree with the creeds. We agree with other churches where they agree with the Bible. We disagree with other churches where they disagree with the Bible. Our authority is the word of God. Jesus said, I have given them thy word and the world has hated them. For it. After the way which they call heresy, that's what I preach. And after the way which they call heresy, that's what we preach here at Grace Baptist Church as we go line upon line and precept upon precept. That's who we are. Let's continue with Hosius. Or that have more cheerfully and steadfastly undergone and even offered themselves to the most cruel sorts of punishments than these people. You see, I think that we have grown soft. When we get pushed back from the culture, we think, well, maybe we shouldn't say that. Maybe we shouldn't take that stand. Pastor, I wish you wouldn't talk about these things. Look, as we reach out to the culture, we're not going to stop talking about these things. This is who we are. God has not called us to react. He's called us to stand. And that's what the Apostle Paul was doing. This is the last one, last long one. J.M. Cramp was a Baptist historian in the 1800s. And he described what happened in the Protestant Reformation. I've read this to you before, but I want you to see it. When Luther blew the trumpet of religious freedom, the sound was heard far and wide, and the Baptists came out of their hiding places to share in the general gladness and to take part in the conflict. For years they had lived in concealment, worshipped God by stealth, and practiced the social duties of Christianity in the best manner they could, under the most unfavorable circumstances. When I was in Switzerland, I went to a cave. It's called the Tauferhold. It's the Baptist cave. And they like to preach the gospel in there. They like to have church services in that cave because a waterfall would fall in front of it. They'd climb this mountain and hide in this cave. And they liked that one because when the waterfall was going, they could sing and no one would catch them and kill them. That was the Lutherans that would have killed them there. Listen to what this says. Now they hoped for peace and enlargement and fondly expected to enjoy the cooperation of the reformers in carrying into effect those changes which they knew were required in order to restore Christian churches to primitive purity. 
They were doomed to bitter disappointments. The reformers had no sympathy with Baptist principles, but strove to suppress them. Papists and Protestants, Episcopalians and Presbyterians treated them in the same manner. The Baptists traveled too fast and went too far. If they could not be stopped by other means, the fire must be lighted or the headsman's axe employed. Thus, the men were silenced. The Emperor Charles V, whom historians have delighted to honor, ordered the women to be drowned or buried alive. Hundreds were sent out of the world by these methods. Thousands more lost their lives by the slower process of penury and innumerable hardships. The demon of persecution reaped an immense harvest in those days. Go back to verse 14. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all the things which are written in the law and the prophets. What is the way that they call heresy? Believing all the things written in the law and in the prophets. I'm sorry, we're back in Acts chapter 24. So it's really important that we understand that when we stand, that the world's going to call that heresy. You're crazy. You're extreme. No, we just love Jesus. We love his word. Amen? That is who we are. All right. So number one, the believer must understand his warfare or consider it. And number two, the, the believer must consider his worship. His worship. The transcendence of your worship is in direct proportion to the depth of your knowledge and understanding of God. See, there are a lot of people that think they're worshiping God, but because they don't know who God is through his word, they're worshiping him incorrectly. They're not worshiping him in all of his power and all of his glory and all of his righteousness and in all of his holiness. Our worship, it must have a meaningful focus. So again, go back to verse 14. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. How is he worshiping? How is he worshiping the God of his fathers? Believing all things written in the law and the prophets. If you don't believe everything in the Bible, you can't be worshiping him properly. Amen. That's who we are. That's who we must be. We have to understand that our worship can't be right if the focus isn't God through the scriptures. The best way to pray to God is pray the scriptures to him. That doesn't mean you don't use your own words. Please use your own words. But when you go to God, say what the Bible says about him. Worship him in spirit and in truth. That's who we're supposed to be. Our worship must have a meaningful focus. That focus is God through the scriptures. I'm not going to take the time to go into a bunch of... Remember the what would Jesus do that we talk about? The bracelet? What's that bracelet actually supposed to... See, what would Jesus do? That's subjective. I can make it anything I want to. The bracelet ought to say, what did Jesus do when he was here doing things? And what should we do because of what he did? That's what the... the really big bracelet. See... Our worship, it must have a meaningful focus. That's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is revealed in Scripture. Remember what Brother Willette said. Nearness is likeness. The nearer you are to Jesus Christ in worship, the more like Christ you will become. The, if you are worshiping a Christ that is not the Christ of the Bible, that's the Christ that you will become like. Got to have the God of the Bible. All right? Number three, the believer must consider his weapon. The believer must consider his weapon. What's his weapon? Believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. That's our authority. Your authority is not Pastor Jim. Your authority is not any Baptist creed or confession. Your authority is the Word of God. That's it. Remember the four authorities, the Word of God and tradition, 
That's traditional Christianity, and their tradition overrules the Word of God. Word of God and experience, that's charismatic Christianity, and their experience overrules the Word of God. Then the Word of God and scholarship, that's modern evangelical Christianity. If there's ever a conflict between the Word of God and their scholarship, their scholarship wins. That's found in the statement, this passage is not found in the best manuscripts. Try and rip something out of your Bible. And then there's the Word of God as your authority, Bible believers. That's who we are. So we as believers, we need to understand our authority, and that means you've got to read it. You've got to believe it. Spend time in it. Preach the Word. We're not going to take the time to look at those passages. Let's move on. Not only must the believer consider these other issues, their warfare and their worship and their weapon, but you must consider your worldview. Now, we spend a lot of time here talking about worldview, but notice Paul's worldview. It's pretty fun. Look at verse uh, 15. So remember, verse 14, But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God. What is your worldview? Man, if our focus is the world, we look at socialism. We look at Nina Pinta Santa Maria Cortez and all the stuff that she's trying to say. And we say, oh my goodness, this thing is falling apart. It's crazy. And what happens then, if our focus is the world, then our worldview becomes angry and bitter and caustic. If our worldview is hope in God, then we walk in there with a smile on your face. I know you believe that. Let me tell you what God says. Do you see how it's completely different? How are we going to approach these things in the world? Not with a closed fist, but with a smile and an open Bible. Our worldview is hopeful. It's not angry. Now, how many of you honestly, be be honest, confess publicly that you tend to be more angry. Which, be honest, because I got my hand up here with you, all right? Man, you, so many of you people are liars. I know you guys. You don't have your hands. All right, so anyway, new sermon. My text, liars shall be friars. All right. Our worldview, it's hope toward God. And I want you to think about something. If our focus is this world, our teaching will be caustic. If our focus is hope in God, then even our correction will be helpful. See, I'm not here to change you. This is our our approach must be. I'm not here to change you. I'm here to help you. I'm not here to attack you. I'm here to help you. I'm not here to criticize you. I'm here to help you. I'm not here to kill you. I'm here to love you. It's a completely different focus. That's why, listen, that's why we're supposed to stand, not react. Our focus needs to be God and his word through worship, not all of the evils in the world. Then the believer must consider his witness. This is tying into last week. How are we to witness? Look at what the apostle said in verse 16. And herein do I exercise myself to have, what's that word right there? Everyone, what is it? A conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. My goodness, can you imagine living a life where your conscience stays clean about the way that you deal with people and about the way that you deal with God? Have you ever finished a conversation and said, boy, I wish I hadn't said that? Yeah, welcome to my life. All of us. And that's where if our focus is God, then our words will be right. If our focus is worship, 
our words will be right. If we understand the object of our warfare is not hatred but love, it changes everything in our approach. Our worldview must be hopeful. That will affect our witness. My witness must be a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. I want you to think about something. You must be right to teach right. You see, if I'm not right with God, I can't represent God well. If I don't have the right spirit, if I don't have the right worldview, if I don't have the right hope, then I will be reacting, not standing. Amen? Are you with me on this? So let's do this. Let's all stand together. We as Christians, our job is not to react. Our job is to stand. We live in a world that's making that harder and harder and harder to do. But Nero is not our emperor. The Apostle Paul stood in the right spirit. And do you know what that did? That caused even his ruler to tremble. Let's be those kinds of people. If you're here this morning, you can't stand until you're saved. Have you asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior? If you died today, are you 100% sure that you would go to heaven? If you're not, get that settled. Then we as believers, you young people, you guys are doing such a good job. You guys, you guys represent Christ so well in your schools and among your friends. Keep it up. Be careful not to react. Stand, but stand hopefully. Jesus Christ is coming back. Amen? Remember that bumper sticker? Jesus Christ is coming back, and boy, is he mad. That is the way he comes back. Let's introduce them to the, let's introduce them to the forgiving Jesus so they don't have to meet the judging Jesus. They're the same man. They're the same God.